Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. By the way, as you'll see, I'm not in my standard studio. Yes, I was noticing that. I'm in my living room because we're in the middle of a move. Ah, we just finished a move a little bit ago. Weren't you building a home last time we chatted? No, but we, we bought a place down in Florida and we'd originally thought maybe we would winter in Florida, but after our first season in Florida, we were ready to make the switch. All right. It has been, oh God, it, this is probably. This is the second worst move in my life from the standpoint of it's mind bending when you realize how much shit you collect. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. We had been in Minnesota for, in our house for 37 years. Uh, yeah. So you can only imagine the sheer volume of crap that we had accumulated in that amount of time. Plus we had a basement, which is the worst thing in the world because, oh, well, let's just put it down in the basement. So I went back to Minnesota on April 28th and spent the whole month of May, getting the house cleaned out. And I left it on June 1st, an empty house, literally nothing in it. So it was quite the month. Wait a minute. So are you saying you took everything you had and you've transferred it to the new home? No, the lovely folks at 1-800-GOT-JUNK dispatched a large quantity of stuff. It's funny, Brian, when I left Charlotte to go to Manhattan to meet up with my wife, I think I had... It was either two or three 1-800-GOT-JUNK trucks. And that was the first time I had purged quite to that degree. Yep. And uh, I'll tell you what, though, isn't it nice? You can it, just go like this. Yep. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah. To make it official, welcome to the Thriller Zone once again. Thank you. Glad to be here. I was doing some homework, Brian. First of all, we'll be talking about this gorgeous book, The Born Defiance. Don't they have great covers on the Born books? I really love what they've done with those. Yeah. One same style, but they're all very different with the different colors. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. I do have one complaint. It's very rare and it's, uh, it's between you and me. And if you hate this comment, I'll cut it out. But there's only one thing I don't like about this book. And that would be. And I said this to my wife last night. It's the fact that your name isn't bigger. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. So, it, but I, I would, it's a little bigger on the, on the, on the spine. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's that's my I, no, I I I will I will say yes, I I I agree with you on that. So okay. but it is a terrific read, which we're gonna cover in just a couple of seconds. Thank you. Uh I was going back. Let me see. I don't have my second screen as I usually do, so I'm actually going old school off of no. Oh, impressive, impressive. That's the way I write my born books here. But yeah. <laughs> oh, are you still doing it by hand, the first draft by hand? No, but I, all my notes and everything I do by hand. Yeah. So I went back. It was July 28th of last year. I cannot believe. Yeah. We're with, we're within uh, nine days of a one year anniversary for you and me. That's right. And uh, I have done 61 episodes <laughs> since I saw it. Wow. But uh, the reason I reference that is because as you I always end the show with the best piece of writing advice. And I wanted to go back and find out, was it what I recalled? And it was exactly what I recalled, which we'll cover in a little bit because my listeners love that last feature on the show. 
All right. So I want to say out of the gate, since we we're, we're tight on time and it's the summer and you got places to be and beaches to roam. This born defiance, what this is what I was saying to my wife last night. She saw me, was it last night or this morning? We've been working around the clock. I think it was this morning about 530. I'm finishing it up. And she said, as good as before, I'm like, this is the thing about Brian Freeman. And I would say this as though you weren't here. I'm like, there's one thing you can always count on with Brian. It's going to be a fun ride. I know that sounds generic. Nope. Nope. I hear you. Yep. But dude, it's, you never, ever disappoint. It's just rock solid. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really like the Born Defiance because... I love the way it ties together the threads from the first three of my Born books. There's so many different subplots that reemerge and feed into the conclusion. And honestly, what's what I it, it makes for a great it makes for a great ending. And I also I believe when it comes to long running series that you have to every few books almost reboot the series and yeah. start from the ground up again because you're always wanting to pull in new readers and you can't have readers confused by all these other subplots and threads that have been going on for books and books. So in Born 5, which I'm working on right now, it gives me the chance to rebuild Born again from the ground up. And I think that's, I think that's how you keep a series fresh. So you're saying that it's really a religious new book. Born again. Yeah. I think the best compliment I can give you is, and this is what I love about, first of all, let me back up one step. My favorite franchise, number one, sorry, James Bond. Number two, the Bourne franchise never disappoints. My wife and I will sit there and watch that series. And there's only what, four or five of them. We'll watch them over and over. And we know we're sitting there quoting lines that are coming up, but we never tire of it. And that's what this book reminded me of. From page one, I'm like, ooh, I'm watching a, a Bourne movie. It's It reads just like a movie. It's awesome. Good. That's definitely what I was, that's what I was trying to do. What's really interesting, of course, is the extent to which the Bourne movies are so different from the books, not just mine, but Von Lusbatter's and Ludlum's as well. I love the Matt Damon movies. What I remember, I think, honestly, my favorite is probably Ultimatum. But what's interesting about Ultimatum is how little dialogue Damon has throughout the movie. He says almost nothing throughout the yeah. entire movie. It's just all pure suspense and action. And so I, it makes for a great film, but of course, it, you're certainly not modeling a book on that because Bourne needs to talk a little bit more. <laughs> and Brian, for all the people who have complaints, who and you and I hear this all the time, oh, it's so much, this book was so much different than the movie, or the movie was different than the book. I'm like, and who was it that said, Mark Graney put it best, because we were chatting a while back, not that long ago, and he, we were talking about the Gray Man series, and someone was beefing on him about it being different, and he goes... I'm perfectly happy because I wrote the book the way I wanted the book to be. The movie producers create the movie that they want. And I'm like, and he goes, I'm perfectly happy and everybody wins. Isn't that great? Yeah. And I always tell folks, because people ask me the same thing. Aren't you afraid that the books, a movie would destroy the book? Like, well, you have to understand that by the time the movie comes out, it's a completely separate artistic product than the book is. And so many different artists have had their hands on that project, whether it's Actors, directors, set designers, choreographers, all these people involved in contributing to the final product of the movie. Of course, it's going to be very different from the original book. And that's fine because the nature of a, of a movie is a very different artistic product than a book. And yeah, it's called artistic license. 
Sure. And by the way, I think your books, I'm going to, I'm going to ballpark. This one was clocking in at three, seven. Yours tend to fall like between 360 and 400. Is that about right? Yeah. 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 I go based on word counts, not page counts. And most right. of my books end up between 95 and 105 in terms of word counts. And for me, I think that's the perfect. There, there are the guys and it's perfectly fine that do the, the 115, 125, 145. Five kind of pushes it never bothers me. And because I'm like, uh, maybe it's because, <laughs> maybe it's because of two reasons, Brian. Number one, I got to read a lot of books for the show. But number two, daddy's attention span ain't what it used to be. <clears throat> when I was, when I was a kid growing up, heck, I would read the, the 800 page Mishner books and uh, the Thornbirds was like what, 900 pages and yeah. you know, I'll bring it on. I tried to listen to the audible version of Irving Wallace's The Plot uh, a couple of months ago. And I loved the plot when I was growing up. I started on the audible version. The thing was like 32 hours long and I got it up to 1.5 speed. And I still was like, no, nah, can't do it. It's too long. No. Yeah. Once again, fast action, complex storyline, memorable characters. This is what you always get with Bourne. This is always what you get with Freeman. And it's just I want to branch off on one thing because I was reading some press on you. It could have been your website. It could have been a pub release about your mastery of the psychological thriller. And it's interesting because I thought, oh, I'd never really thought about Brian's work being a psychological thriller. However, of course, it's steeped in good psychology right. and themes of such. But I always think of it as my brain always goes, oh, action thriller, because it's so much action. So here's my question. How do you how do you differentiate, and if you do, the difference between, say, a psychological thriller, an action thriller, a mystery suspense thriller? I get military thriller because those are sure. rather... I call them hardware thrillers. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about <laughs> the guns in those. <laughs> yeah, it, and people blur over the differences simply between mysteries and thrillers themselves. And all mysteries end up being called thrillers when they're simply not. And, and all thrillers end up getting called mysteries, which they're simply not. I have certain ideas in my head about it. In my mind, a, a mystery is about solving a puzzle that happened in the past, whereas a thriller is about events that are happening right now that create danger and suspense for the characters. And you can easily combine those things. And most of my personal books are sort of mystery thrillers because typically there's a puzzle at the heart of them of, of who did what to whom and why. And yet at the same time, usually I'm also building in a lot of present violence and suspense that, that goes along with that. So I try to blur the lines between those two genres. Psychological versus action. Honestly, I was actually a little surprised when, when Putnam did take uh, me on to do the Bourne books because really action thrillers had never been my classic genre. Mine were more psychological and there, there was certainly plenty going on in the, in the books, but I wasn't writing a lot of fight scenes and chase scenes and things like that in, in my other books. Uh, it was really more about what was going on inside the heads of the characters and the motivations were all driven by the psychology of the characters. But I think what, why that works for Bourne is that Bourne is a very interesting, layered, complex psychological character. When you f factor in the idea that here is a man who has lost his memory, he's lost his whole sense of who he is. And it's not even a question of not remembering the events of his past. It's all a question of not remembering what kind of a man he is. 
is he a moral man? Can you be a moral man if you've got the skills he has and, and does the things he does? So those are some pretty solid existential questions that I think everybody deals with in terms of struggling to figure out who they are as people. And Bourne does the same thing, but of course ramps it up to this high dramatic level. So I, I see a lot of psychological depth in Bourne that for me makes it really interesting to be able to build plots around those facets of his character. And of course, well, a lot of bodies do. And I think really you hybrid the two so well. There's a lot of action in this, but the funny thing is the action doesn't get in the way of the story. Sometimes the action, it, what, what did we watch recently? The act, oh, okay. This is not a good comparison to your work. So don't take it that way. We're watching the John Wick 4, which is nothing but murder and mayhem to the nth degree for 97.5% of the film. After a while, you just go, okay, so he's going to shoot everybody, no matter how many guns are pointed at him. <laughs> but I, what I've always liked about your books and the Bourne franchise in general, there's a scene in one of the Bourne movies, and you carry this sensibility through into your book. And there's a scene when Jason Bourne, Matt Damon goes into this truck stop and his girlfriend is sitting across from him. And he says something to the effect of, I can tell you how many people are sitting in this room, how many cars are out in the parking lot, the license plate of every one of them. The guy, I can tell you that the guy on that bar stool right there does this, and whatever that trick is. It gets me every time because it's so cool and you drip feed some of those similar ideas throughout the book that, that gives him that, I don't want to use the phrase superpower because it's not a superpower. All right. It's one of those eidetic kind of things that just drop in and you're like, oh, it's cool. That, yeah, that's a great, that's a great scene in the movies. Interestingly, one of the things that surprised me about the Matt Damon Bourne movies, because I saw it happening in the films. And I was surprised they never brought out this theme. But it seemed to me when I watched all the scenes between Matt Damon and Julia Stiles that they were clearly in the back of their heads setting up the fact that prior to Bourne losing his memory, he had a relationship with Julia Stiles. And that they, that's what drives the intensity of the relationship between them is she remembers the relationship and can't tell him about that. And he hasn't discovered yet that they were actually lovers. I'm amazed that they never brought that out in the later Bourne films because it felt to me like they'd been setting it up. As a writer, I was looking at it going, there's clearly a, a longstanding connection between these two people that goes beyond what's, what the action of the film is. But they didn't do anything with it. I was like, oh, I, I hope next time, if they ever get around to making another Bourne film, that they'll pull some of that out. But of course, they have plenty of other source material now that they could be working with. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of source material, let's take 20 seconds on this. We now have the WGA, the sag after all on strike, which I was talking to a, a rather prominent person in the Hollywood industry. And he was saying it has been a literal shutdown of business, a complete like COVID kind of shutdown. Do you have any thoughts? Where is your head about that? If you have any thoughts, I'm sure you do. And do you see it affecting future writers, be it television or fiction books? Yeah, a few things. One, one is that I, I roll my eyes in frustration because back in, I think it was 2010, 
a, a book that I had written with my agent called The Agency. We wrote it under the pseudonym Allie O'Brien. was close in the movie biz. And guess what happened? There was a strike. And the strike just killed the movie project. And here we are all these years later, and Universal has gone into the second option on my novel, Infinite. And so the screenplay is done, and they're, they're going to be getting to the decision point, do we go or no go on making the movie? And it's like, what do we get? Another strike. I'm like, are you serious? I'm hoping they wrap this baby up pretty soon. But there are clearly a lot of really interesting issues here, particularly related to AI and, and things like that. And I, I completely understand the concerns that both the writers and actors have about their intellectual property rights and where that is going forward. I think in some ways, potentially, this is as significant a transition in the relationships between the producers and the people that write and, and act in the films as it was back in the day when they started coming up with residuals for TV performers. I wish them well. I hope that they can get it resolved in a satisfactory way on, on both sides. But yeah, it, it's, this is certainly a big threshold in terms of how movies are going to be written and made in, in the years ahead. Yeah, I wish them all well, and I, and I hope it is resolved handsomely and efficiently. I want to go back to something. I was reading the number of countries and languages your books are made in, four, uh, 46 countries, 23 languages, and being the heir to the uh, Robert Ludlum legacy, I... There was a two-part question here. I wondered, how does one accomplish that? How does one get approached to, to carry on that torch? And number two, were you, and I, I don't recall if I'd asked you this last time, were you always a Ludlum fan? Were you always that guy like, man, I'm reading everything Ludlum and, and th th this would be a dream come true. I, uh, was I a Ludlum fan? Absolutely. I grew up reading Ludlum's books. I can still remember the first Ludlum book I read. I bought it at a Long's drugstore in San Mateo, California. It was the Chancellor manuscript. And I, I started reading the book in the checkout line at the drugstore and walked out of the drugstore with my head down, walking across the parking lot, reading the book. And I don't think I put it down until late that night when I finished it. I can remember thinking back then, this is, I, I want to write stuff like this. This is just amazing suspense. And the Born Identity came out in 1980. I, I read it when I was 17 years old. Uh, if you had told me back then that 40 years later, 40 years later, uh, books would be coming out with my name and Ludlum's names together on the cover, I, I would have thought that was crazy. Here we are. So. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing honor. It, it's an amazing responsibility because being such a fan and, and, and Ludlum being such a giant of the genre and born this I iconic, enduring hero, it, there's a tremendous responsibility of doing right by both of them and feeling I'm adding, not just continuing on the series, but trying to add something to it and add new layers to who this character is. So I'm truly honored and thrilled to have the opportunity. And, and it, I, it, as I said, came out of nowhere. I got a, a call from my agent about throwing my hat in the ring. And five months later, I got another call from my agent saying, Putnam wants you for Bourne. And I'm assuming that the folks at Putnam read some of my books in the middle and thought, okay, this guy can do it. But certainly I, I pushed hard and said, hey, I love Ludlam books. I love Bourne as a character. And I really feel like I can do something special with this series. Yeah. Mission accomplished. 
For those who don't know some of your past work, I was looking at, I didn't realize, I'm sure I knew this at one time. So you got Jason Bourne, you got Frost Eastman, you got Jonathan Stride, Cab Bolton, and Standalones. And the very first thing that popped into my head when I was reading that, I'm like, how does he keep all the primary characters straight? They are all very different, which is good. And people have asked, because when I was working on the Bourne Evolution, the first of my Bourne books, I was writing, I think it was Funeral for a Friend, the previous Stride book before the most recent one at the same time. Literally, the deadlines were within two weeks of each other to do different publishers. So the only thing I could do was do like a week on Bourne and then a week on Stride. And I was going back and forth doing that for about six months, which drove me crazy. I won't lie. But at the same time, what helped was the fact that they are such different characters and Stride intricate, gritty, police procedural, northern Minnesota kind of hero, very laconic, known a lot of loss in his life, tucks his chin against that Minnesota wind and, and moves on. And then Bourne, the, the, the action hero and, and his struggles. So I could put down one and pick up the other, and, and they were very different characters. If they were similar, it would make the process a lot harder. Same thing with books like Frost Easton and, and Cab Bolton. Cab, such a fun character, right? Six, six foot five and uh, blonde hair, always wears suits in Florida, even in the heat and humidity takes takes life seriously but doesn't take himself seriously at all and and a very different character right and frost easton this loner out in san francisco wants to be with a woman but it, it never seems to work out all three of them just really interesting different characters people ask me a lot about stride because I mean, here we've got 11 books in the stride series and do i have a a binder of all the details about the different characters the facts of who they are and i think I probably should have, because uh, invariably, I'm sure I make mistakes not doing that, but I don't want the characters to be nothing more than two-dimensional summaries of, of facts and figures. I want them to be real and human and three-dimensional, so I rely on the idea that they're going to talk me through their stories. And the reality is, people make mistakes about themselves. People don't always remember their own pasts properly. God knows Jason Bourne doesn't. But people get fuzzy about their past as they go forward. So they are going to make mistakes about details like that. So that kind of thing doesn't necessarily bother me. What's most important to me is that the characters are just going to leap off the page and feel real to the readers. It's so funny. I love the fact that, and actually this may not have made it in the show because we were doing a little chit chat folks on the warm up, and Brian was telling me that he was recently moving from Minnesota to Florida. Now, a uh, two-part question once again, did you used to vacation and or spend time in Florida, which is why you've now chosen that as primary home? And are you now full-time all in Florida? Yes, we, we vacation in Florida for years and years, so we know it very well. We had actually considered the idea of, we, we knew that we had a two-story house in Minnesota, which wasn't going to work for retirement and getting older. And Minnesota winters were simply not going to work for us as we got older. So we'd always known we were going to have to make a switch. We'd actually thought about the desert Southwest at one point and maybe somewhere outside the Las Vegas area, but we started getting pretty concerned about natural resources down there and thinking, is there going to really be water for everybody down there over the long haul? So we, we knew Florida really well. We really enjoyed the, uh, we, we enjoy the climate down there. I, I, perhaps me a little bit more than Marsha, heat and humidity have never bothered me, but she's actually adapted to it very well as well. We came down here with the thought that you know, we might winter down here and then keep going back to Minnesota during the summers for a couple of years. But we, uh, we spent the first season down here and we're like, it's just, we love it down here. We love the people. We love the atmosphere, the, 
the weather is great. And uh, it having two places is, it just puts stress on your whole life because you've got the, the expense and worry of whenever you're not in one place, you're worried about what's going to happen and things come up and you're just not there to take care of them. So we said, you know what, we're just going to consolidate down in, in Florida. So we just literally in the last few days accepted an offer on our place in Minnesota. But it's, yeah. it's hard. We spent our pretty much our whole adult lives up there. That's a big switch. So, Would you say 37 years? That's how long we'd been in the house. Yeah. Wow. And an and unbelievable accumulation of crap that goes along with that. <laughs> yeah, for all of us. Oh, my goodness. Now, the, I was reading uh, Real Books by, I think it must have hit Twitter last night or, to, or today, places your book in their latest top 10 summer reads. And you fall in at number four, which is fantastic. You, you're only beat by, if it's rated, you know, categorically. The Collector, Dan Silva. Blind Fear of Web and Man, Dead Fall, Brad Thor, and then Born Defiance, you. And there's there's six more, one including, oh, look, Ryan Steck of all things. Imagine that. <laughs> but let's talk now about the Born Defiance. I'd love to hear what's your elevator pitch for those listening who really are going, I'm very close to buying it. I just need Brian to push me over the edge. Yeah, th this was a really fun book to plot. Born is... Bohr discovers that Treadstone agents around the world are being hunted down and killed, and he is on the target list. Uh, and the motive behind these assassinations seems to go back to this shadowy mission from the past codenamed Defiance. But of course, Bohr doesn't remember his past. He doesn't know what that mission was really all about. And the one man who may have the answers is that double agent who used to be Treadstone and is now a Russian assassin who, who calls himself Lenin, L-E-N-O-N, and loves to kill people to the, to the sound of Beatles songs. And uh, so it's, it, it sets up this wonderful cat and mouse game between Bourne and Lenin as in the background, Bourne tries to figure out what is the reality behind Defiance. It's so good. And the Cain and Abel at the beginning, borrowing on the classic characters from the Bible. And the, oh, I thought it was Jeffrey Archer. No, I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The classic cat and mouse. There's, there's very few books that pull off that cat and mouse chase. Sometimes it feels cartoony. This does not do that. And the way they weave in and out of each other's paths is just, is so solid. And you well, just and I, once. I, I created, I like to be inspired by the real Ludlum books. And I, I like, that's part of how I think readers feel Ludlum's presence is I, I dip into the Ludlum lore as I'm creating the plots. And so when I was writing my second book, The Born Treachery, I really wanted to create a foil for Born that was similar to what Carlos was for Born in the original books that Carlos, the assassin, was always out there. And that was what the nemesis for Jason Bourne. So in, in my books, I wanted to bring back a similar kind of nemesis for Bourne. And that's where Lenin emerged out of the ethos. So I think Lenin is playing the role for Bourne that, that Carlos did. Similarly, in my preceding book, The Bourne Sacrifice, you'll see that the Chancellor Manuscript, that, that great first thriller out of Ludlow, folds into the plot of The Bourne Sacrifice. And I actually brought the character Peter Chancellor from that book back in The Born Sacrifice. And I, I went out and got special permission from the estate to do that because I didn't want to cause any 
IP problems for them, uh, drawing a character in from one of Ludlum's of it. I was so pleased they agreed because it, it just adds that extra whole layer of fun for, for Ludlum fans to be able to have not just Bourne, but one of his other characters reappear. So. As I referenced earlier, it was almost within a weekish one year ago that we talked about the Bourne Sacrifice, episode 80, that's 61 episodes since then. And I remember when we were talking then, and I think I, if memory serves, and there's been a lot of books since it, Ryan, so you got to bear with me a little bit and very little sleep, <laughs> that you not only nailed the Ludlum, but you brought your own little special sauce to it. And that sounds kind of cliche, but you do have a way with the way you sprinkle. I love the way you'll have dialogue and you'll have inner thoughts and then you'll have reality and then you'll have the present moment, but it's all stacked together seamlessly so as not to confuse the reader, but to give enough direction on what I should be thinking and feeling both in the moment and moving forward without being simplistic and making yeah. me feel, yeah, I got that. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It, it, it does. And it's that delicate balancing act because, uh, and particularly because you also want to have, you don't want to slow down the pace. And no. so you, you, you don't want to have too much backstory, too much inner thinking that, that, that the readers are going to start feeling, oh, oh we, we need to move things along here. So you're, it's, it's finding that, that sweet spot of, of making sure you've got just enough of all the different elements that, that propels the book, but also enwraps you in the characters. Here's a, here's an interesting question. As a writer myself, I'd love to know on average, how many drafts would you say, if that's not an inside secret for yourself, but I'd love to know because there's that bang out, get the first one, don't judge, let it go, then refine, then, oh, I missed this, or I got to pull this thing back around. Ballpark, man. I'm just yeah, it's, that, it's, a, it's a tough call because I don't necessarily think in terms of drafts. Um, yeah. Because as I'm, as I'm writing the, the first draft, um, I'm constantly editing as I go. Um, and, and, you know, part of it may be I, as I get older, my memory just sucks. And so I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly going back several chapters and rereading where I am to make sure that the flow stays consistent and it makes sense and people are, are feeling the narrative go in the proper direction. So I'm editing and re-editing throughout the development of that first draft. So by the time the first draft is done, I've been through each of the chapters probably half a dozen times as I've put the whole manuscript together. After that, I'd say I, you know, go through the full book from start to finish four or five times. It depends on where I am in terms of the, the deadline. And, and I'm sure that as writers, I'm not sure we're ever done. We just reach a point where we have to stop. Because sooner or yeah. later we still have to turn it in. I could pick up, I could pick up most of my books today, and I'm sure I would immediately take out a pen and start and start editing. Although I will say, I I, I listened to the audio editions of my two favorite of my books, the Deep Snow and the Ursulita. Totally unlike Born, they're female first person narratives, very emotional mysteries, really mysteries much more than thrillers. I listened to the audio editions. They're both narrated by this wonderful actress, January Lavoie. And I, I, what made me happier than anything was I got to the end of both books and I was like, I would not change a word. Wow. So that, that felt really good. That is, that's quite an accomplishment. That's quite a feat to have accomplished. I want to know this because crafting one story or in your, or one character, or in your case, multiple 
what influences you? Like, I want to know what's on your nightstand or on that side table in your elaborate library there in Florida. Interestingly, what influences me tends to be nonfiction and reality. I don't actually read that much fiction on my own. I'll occasionally listen to audiobooks, but uh, when I'm reading, most of the time I'm going to read nonfiction, biographies, history, autobiographies, memoirs, things of that nature. And because I actually find real people more inspirational, and I take a lot about how characters are based on how real people have behaved. And the interesting thing about when you write your own books, it's, it's nothing against other writers, but it's hard to get inside other people's fiction in quite the same way that you do your own, because it's such a three-dimensional experience when you're writing your own book and you're so much inside the heads of the characters that inevitably it it makes other people's works feel a little bit two-dimensional because you just don't have that same connection, that, that psychological, emotional connection to the story in the same way, which is why I ultimately said, it doesn't really work for me too well to read fiction the way I used to. So I, I switched over to, to more nonfiction. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. And here's another thing. This is not going to sound very, maybe politically correct or sensitive or proper or whatever. I don't really give a shit. And, but it's this, I am amazed. And that's probably because I'm reading between two and three books a week, but I'm amazed at how few fresh ideas out there and how many are just derivative of everything else that's being done. And if it's yeah, a little, no. if there's a throne, you'll see the new guys come out and jump on that trend. And it's, <laughs> I, yeah, I sadly, I, I have seen the th- same thing. It, it, it's, it's a little discouraging in some, re- some regards. Cause I mean, sometimes I'll look at the, the new release store, the new release listings coming out from a, from an indie bookstore and I'll, I'll read the descriptions of the books and, and uh, they may list 10 books and three of them have elements that are very similar to one another. And it seems so much these days is it, and, and, and I get it. It, it's success in one particular area tends to breed imitation. It's not say imitations are necessarily bad. Sometimes imitations may be better than the original, but I, I think when one area is pretty successful, you have a lot of people that sort of plow into that same field. So I think when, when Harlan Coben broke out and was so successful with no second chance. I think what you what he was so successful in doing was building out a whole new genre of suburban thriller, where essentially it was about horrible things happening to ordinary families living in the suburbs. And all of a sudden, you had tons of people writing suburban thrillers, and many of them doing it very well, but following that same line. I think now what you have is more of the family thrillers. It's, oh my God, what's happening to my husband or, oh my God, what's happening to my wife or or my kids are doing this. And so family thrillers have become the huge genre in the last five years. And now everybody seems to be writing those. And again, some of them very good, but it, it, it does, the elements certainly end up being very similar. At that point becomes a question of how are they executed? But for for me, I, I, I will say that when I see a particular type of thriller becoming really popular, my instinct run the other way and see what I can come up with. That's very different. Do you remember when Gone Girl came out and then forever, every book had the title girl or gone in some form or fashion? Yes. Yeah. Didn't they, they did some sort of satirical thing about the gone girl on the train looking in the window or whatever the heck it was that was on Netflix. And, and, and it's funny, a lot of people started getting bent out of shape about girl being used in all the title. Why aren't they using 
boy in the title more, which of course they do boy with the striped pajamas and things like that. But I always wanted to tell people there's a perfectly good reason why there's a writer reason why girl shows up in the title much more than woman. And it's because woman is two syllables and a uh, girl is one. And so when you're looking at titles, two syllables are just clunkier. Inevitably yeah. they, they use girl. Yeah. That's so good. Brian, as we start to wrap, I, I want to come back to I always close the show with the best piece of writing advice. And I'm not going to read what you, I, I got the first quote of last year's uh, piece of writing advice. I want to see how close it is today to what you said a year ago. So if you had <laughs> one best piece of writing advice to my readers and listeners, what would it be? Uh, I, I would tell them that 100% of unwritten books have never been published. One of unwritten books have never been published. <laughs> dot, dot. So ignore the voice in your head that says you can't do it. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> we are our own worst enemies. And it's, uh, it's funny because I think right, beginning writers may have the feeling that eventually that will go away. And I'm here to tell you it does not. I'm, I think I'm working on my 27th novel right now. And it is still every bit as stressful and I'm still every bit as neurotic and paranoid about every single chapter as I was when I was working on Immoral. Uh, it, I think it's just part of the writer's personality that you're always psyching yourself out and you're always afraid that whatever, maybe it's because we don't know where this gift comes from and that if we think too hard about it, it's going to be taken away someday. And so I look at it and go, the, the only, you're never going to silence that voice. So what you have to do is try to use it to your advantage and realize that the voice that's telling you, oh, this is no good is simply the excuse you have to keep editing and keep working harder and keep making it better. There you go. I just love the fact that it's dead on the exact same <laughs> So good. And such a solid piece of advice. Folks, if you want to know more about this dandy little book, The Born Defiance, and I hope I did get across the point that I absolutely loved it. Did Go I ahead. make that point you clear? You did. Okay, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Just always impressed with your work, Brian. But if you want to learn more, go to bfreemanbooks.com, bfreemanbooks.com. You can also follow him at Twitter as I do with the same name. And I guess, Brian, will we be celebrating another anniversary around July-ish in 2040 thing that that is certainly the plan i'm working on number five right now turning it in sometime in october and i would expect we'll be back around again in in july of 24 and i will once again be saying that 100 of unwritten books have never been published so. you're a living example hey by the way one quick thought all my press photos of you are standing in this frigid gotta, gotta update that don't i yeah I'd like to see you near maybe uh, a beach, some palms nearby. I got to, yep. Got to work on that. Yep. Got to get that sunshine and sand. <laughs> and if you want to get that done sooner than later, I'll use that on the upcoming promo for you. Which <laughs> you the show drops on the 24th. This drops out here on a Monday. Then your book drops on the 25th, correct? Yes, that is correct. So good. Brian, as always, you're a pleasure and such an inspiration. Thank you. Thanks. Great to talk to you. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox, 
The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.